is my privilege to open God's word with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. The new year is a time for new things. We'll start a workout plan, maybe a diet, maybe even a new pattern of intentional time with the Lord. The new year can also be a time for recommitment, to something, recommitting to something that we got away from in the past year. The book of Deuteronomy is also about renewal. It is the record of a covenant renewal ceremony for Israel that occurred before they entered the promised land. So throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding them of what the Lord has done for them, how he has provided for them, redeemed them, and made a covenant with them. He's also reminding them, that, reminding them of what is required of them as Yahweh's or the Lord's covenant people. If things are to go well for them into the land, they're going to need to obey. And if they fail to obey, they're reminded of the consequences of their disobedience. So specifically, our passage today, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, is answering the core question of, what does the Lord require of me? What is my duty toward my, toward my God who has made a covenant with me? This is much like the question of, what is my duty toward my spouse? Or if you are younger, what, are, what is my responsibility towards my parents? And these are analogous to the question of, what is my duty toward my God? Because in a sense, all of these relationships are ones that cannot be broken. They are all covenant relationships. And for each of these relationships, there are responsibilities that come with it. Duties that need to be fulfilled by both parties. And based on the existence of the phrase, happy wife, happy life, we know that to some extent the quality of our lives depend on us fulfilling our duties or callings within these relationships. But this is something that we find hard. We are self-centered creatures and we want to do whatever is easiest for us, even when there are consequences that hurt our relationships. In our sinful nature, when we have a duty or responsibility, we often seek to run away from it. And if you are like me, when you're told to do something, you're likely going to want to do the opposite. If you need confirmation of this, you can ask my wife Bailey or my dad. An example of this would be the time when it had recently rained and there was a nice big mud puddle in our driveway and dad was about to mow the yard. And he says, don't get in the mud puddle. And sure enough, by the time that he'd gotten around the yard once, my brother and I were both covered head to toe in mud. We had gone ahead and did the exact opposite of what we were told to do because, well, that's how a lot of us work. We're covenant breakers by nature now, and we will by default choose to ignore our responsibilities. We like our autonomy and freedom, and we like it without obstacles. So to have duties placed upon us is something that we seek to avoid. Yet, at the same time, we value relationships, which requires certain things of us, and even at times, things that are costly. We're willing to go out of our way to spend time with our spouses or other family members, even when we could be doing something far more productive. We go to great lengths to care for those who are struggling, and our culture even values offering up your life to protect your loved ones. And when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, our duty is, to, the, is something that requires our whole selves. So our passage reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, you are our God and we are your people. And as we remember our duty before you today, I ask that you would fill us with love and thankfulness for your wonderful work in redeeming us from sin. I pray that you would open our ears and hearts as we hear from you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So here we find that our, that our duty to the Lord is not so much about fulfilling obligations, but loving him with all that we are. So today, my three main points are one, we are to love the Lord with everything that we are. Two, we are to love the Lord in ordinary life by way of obedience. And three, that we are to love the Lord in every sphere of life by way of remembering. And the first thing we see in verses 4 and 5 is that we are to love the Lord with everything we are. Verse 4 starts off with the phrase, Hear, O Israel, which is a common phrase throughout Deuteronomy and is calling the Israelites' attention to what Moses is saying. And it's far more than just a call to hear. This kind of hearing is a theme that is present throughout the rest of the canon. The father in Proverbs calls on his son to hear my son. The prophet Isaiah is told that he's going to go to a people that will keep on hearing but not understanding. And Jesus often will end a parable with the phrase, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And the significance of this is that the act of hearing is not to be separated from doing. James 1, 22 through 25 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So when we are called to hear, we are not called to passive listening, but to active response. And in this context, we are to respond what, to what was known as the, to the Israelites as the Shema. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in order to figure out how they were to respond to this, we need to know what it means. And very simply, it means that Yahweh, the God who has made Israel his people by covenant, is utterly unique. And that there is no other God. And this would have pointed the Israelites' minds to their own recent history. This God, who had chosen Israel and made them his own, did so by redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, by displaying his awesome power and unmaking one of the greatest powers of the time. Not only that, but the Lord parted the Red Sea, provided food and water in the wilderness, and met with his people, coming down on a mountain and speaking to them. And then, through Moses, he, as a chosen mediator, he made a covenant with them, sealing the bond between himself and these people. And all of this was despite the unfaithfulness of Israel, who contributed nothing to their rescue or survival. And to this reality, there is only one fitting response, and that is love. Verse 5 points us to this response. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this response of love to the Lord is to be comprehensive. The biblical understanding of one's heart was that it was the seat of the intellect, will, and intention. One commentator phrased it this way, You think with your heart, and your heart shapes your character, choices, and decisions. It is the center of the human as a moral agent. So to love the Lord with all your heart means that who God is and what he has done fuel, directs and fuels every thought, action, and behavior. 
And when Moses says that we need to love God with all our souls, he's referring to as he, what they would refer to as the soul, as one commentator put it, as to the whole inner self with all the emotions, desires, and personal characteristics that make each human being unique. And this is something that is very important for us as it points to the reality that we are all different and thus are to love the Lord in a way that is fitting for our individual characteristics that the Lord has given us and the individual circumstances that God has put us in. So thus far, we are to love the Lord with all our heart, which is who we are at the core of our being, where we think, feel, and make decisions. And we are to love the Lord with all our soul, which is our entire individual existence. And we come to the last of the three things on the list, and that is to love the Lord with all our might. And the Hebrew word for might in this case means greatly or exceedingly. So to read the last part of verse 5 literally, it is to say, and with all your very muchness. So as one commentator sums up verse 5, we are called to love the Lord your God with total commitment, which is your heart, with your total self, soul, to total excess. So how does this work? Loving the Lord is comprehensive. How can we do this when we have other responsibilities? This can be a hard question for us to answer as we typically will associate love with an emotion or feeling. But if that is the case, then love cannot last and will be absent in our ordinary activities because our emotions come and go. So having a continuous strong feeling of love is not really realistic. So if we're going to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might, then we're going to need a more holistic answer. Loving the Lord does include feelings and affections. They are vital, but it also includes obedience and remembrance. And these are things that we can do in ordinary, everyday life. And in fact, if we look at things that we love, we see that we reflect our love for them in a lot of ways. I love my wife, Bailey, in many different ways. I tell her that I love her often. I'll spend quality time with her. But I also will love her by doing things that she asks me to. Things like washing the dishes, making dinner, driving her to school on a cold morning. And these are all things that are a genuine act of love, but it's not necessarily involving of a feeling. In fact, some of them I do despite not feeling like it. After all, I don't know anyone who really enjoys doing the dishes. And this is where Moses goes in the rest of our passage. He points, points out how we are to apply this call to respond to who God is and what he has done in our redemption by living out his commandments and remembering him in all that we do all of the time. So this brings me to my second main point, that we are to love the Lord by way of obedience. And this comes out in verses 6 and 7, which say, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Moses here says that the words or the commandments that the Israelites receive are to be written on their hearts. This would include the Ten Commandments, the instructions for all the feasts, and all the other commands God had given, as well as the reminders of what the Lord had done in history. It would be fair to extrapolate to say that the whole of scriptures are to be on our hearts. And again, the word heart here is referring to the core of who you are, the intellect, will, and emotions and affections that shape your decisions, thoughts, and feelings. And because of this, your love for the Lord will show up in what kind of person you are. After all, we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. If your heart is shaped by love for the Lord, your life will reflect that. Just as an apple tree can only produce apples, so a heart that 
will produce fruit in line with what it loves. So a heart that loves God will reveal itself in its actions, as will a heart that does not love God. Moses then moves on to what this looks like in verse 7. And the first thing that he calls us to is that we need to teach the commands of the Lord diligently to our children. Family discipleship is important, and ordinary everyday life is the perfect time to do that. As the example that parents set for their children is something that will shape them for the rest of their life. Israelites are also called to talk of the Lord's commandments as they sit in their house, as they walk by the way, as they lie down, and as they rise. This comprises the entirety of one's day. Thought and speech about the Lord are to be continuous. Just as one newly in love cannot stop gushing about their newfound lover, so should our hearts desire to have our thoughts and speech dwell on the Lord, who is the ultimate good. Now, this is not to say that God is the only thing that you can talk about. That is not practical, not reasonable, and it shortchanges the goodness of God's created world. But so often our speech and our thought lives reflect so little focus on the Lord and what he is doing. We need to learn to integrate him into every moment of our lives. We'll tend to compartmentalize our lives to the point of forgetting God until it's time for church, Bible study, or fill in the blank any other religious activity. And if we are to fulfill our calling to love the Lord with all that we are to the excess, then we must learn to integrate God into the entirety of our lives. This is where loving the Lord with all your soul comes in. You are called to figure out what it looks like to love the Lord and obey him in your own life in your work, in your home, and in your relationships. Each of us has different circumstances and responsibilities, and the Lord cares about how we conduct ourselves within those circumstances and responsibilities. This may seem like a difficult task, but it turns out that we're actually quite good at integrating our loves into our lives. Everyone knows what your favorite sports team is if they spent significant time with you. Why is that? Because your fandom is integrated with the rest of your life. You talk about your team, you wear your fan gear, you spend time watching your team, and so on. And this is true for anything else that we love. We naturally integrate it into our lives. So how can we integrate our faith into rest, the rest of our life? The Bible actually shows us how the reality of God's salvation shapes everything. For these Israelites, now that they had been freed from slavery, they were to be a holy nation that conducted themselves differently than the people around them because of who their God was. And the law of God gave them guidelines, guidelines from which they could understand what it meant to live as the people of God. In that, their love for the Lord showed up in their obedience to his commands. We are called to this same response, but in relation to our redemption in Christ. So to sum up this point, if the commands of the Lord are written on our hearts, that will shape who we are. And if that is the case, then we will think, speak, and live the entirety of our lives in a way that reflects our obedience to God. My third main point is that we are called to love the Lord by remembering him in all spheres of our lives. Verses 8 and 9 read, You shall bind them, the Lord's words, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And this part of our passage communicates our continual remembrance of the need for continual remembrance of the words of the Lord, as they will be a great aid to loving the Lord. So at one point, when my dad was starting to need reading glasses, he would buy a bunch of cheap pairs from Walmart, and he would put them everywhere. He'd put them in the car, in the office, at work, multiple places at work, with the idea that if the reading glasses were everywhere, then he couldn't possibly be without. 
Well, then at some point he would keep managing to put them in his pocket, walk away, forget, and he'd be without. So then he bought this pair of reading glasses that had like a magnet in the middle and he could put them around his face and pull them down and wear them as a necklace. And the reason I tell you this story is that I think it pretty well captures the idea behind these last couple of verses. If we are to bind the word of God to our hands, between our eyes, on, the, on our doors and on our gates, we will literally not be able to avoid seeing them repeatedly throughout the day. Just like my dad was far less likely to lose or forget his reading glasses once he had them around his neck. Now, we aren't necessarily called to literally bind the word of God to our hands, between our eyes, etc. But the point is that we are continuously pointed back to God, even in the most mundane of things. And this frequent reminder would continuously bring to mind the reality that we are God's people. And that means that we are to live differently. And what's interesting is that this isn't just an individual reminder. Binding it on your hands and as a front loop between your eye would have been more personal, but it also would have been seen by those that you interacted with. But by putting the commands of God on your doorpost and on your gates, it would have been far it would have been a reminder for your whole family and community, respectively. There is a need for both individual and corporate remembering, and thus individual and corporate loving for God. Hence the fact that we gather as a covenant community. And the fact that the church is the body of Christ, that together we may love God through obedience and remembrance in all the various spheres of our lives. And one quick thing that we can take away from this is our need to remind one another of what the Lord has done and is doing. And to point one another deeper into the character of God. We can be the writing on the doorpost and the gates for one another in our homes when we gather together. And we can also comfort and encourage one another. But why do we need these reminders? Better yet, why do we need these reminders if God's words are to be written on our heart? The reality is that for both, both the Israelites and ourselves, this call to love the Lord our God may be retained as knowledge, but functionally forgotten. We know that we are to obey God. We know that we need to remember who our God is, but we don't. We fall short. We'll continuously battle pride as we attribute the work of the Lord to our own efforts and treat the gifts of the Lord as if, as if they had always been our own. Israel time and time again forgot that it was God who delivered them from Egypt, that it was God who drove out their enemies from the promised land. They forgot after even being told that they would forget and being commanded to remember. It was Israel who proudly boasted in their own might after conquering a land and receiving his blessings from God's cities, wells, and vineyards, and olive trees that they did not build nor dig, nor cultivate. Israel was the epitome of unfaithfulness, time and time again committing actual and spiritual adultery, cheating on the Almighty Sovereign Lord who condescended to be near to these people that he had redeemed for himself. And as a result of having forgotten, they did not obey, remember, and thus did not love the Lord. They were sent into exile for having broken the covenant. They had brought, brought upon themselves the curse reserved for covenant breakers because of their willful forgetting. They had turned away to whatever was right in their own eyes, and ultimately the hearts of this people were hard, not loving the Lord and seeing him for who he is. Even those who had seen the Lord with their own eyes part the Red Sea, who saw the Lord sustain them with manna from heaven and water from a rock as they followed him as a, as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And they forgot that they needed God, and they failed to love him. So far be it from us to say that we would never forget to love the Lord our God. 
We too are covenant breakers. Our hearts are often far from God, captivated by things of the world or too self-focused to think about anything outside of ourselves. Our love for God is far from total and integrated, but is compartmentalized and half-hearted. And a few simple questions will be sufficient to diagnose us with hard, twisted hearts. Questions like, are you living in complete obedience to the law of God? Or is God the driving passion of your life? Does the reality of who God is transform everything in your life? And our answers to these questions are probably not what we would like to hear. So if our hearts are hard, what then are we to do? We are hopelessly incapable of fulfilling this calling to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might with our own resources. Our hearts are beyond repair, and rather than totally loving the Lord, our hearts are totally self-absorbed. Yet this is true of even those who believe the gospel to some level. Our obedience is not total and in every area of life. So where do we turn? We turn to the promises of God. The Old Testament prophets spoke to the people of God, calling them back to covenant faithfulness and speaking the word of the Lord to them. And there's a promise that fits with our situation here. And this promise is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The covenant breakers will become covenant keepers, all by the work and the power of God. And the striking thing here is that God doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't promise a new command with lesser requirements. Rather, he promises to give his people the ability to obey. And this he will do by making a new covenant, where the Lord himself will write the people, write the law on his people's hearts. And as we mentioned earlier, this was the people's responsibility. But God is going to do something new that would make the law be on their hearts. And we see that in verse 34, the Lord also promises to forgive the sins of the people. And the result will be that all of God's people will know him so intimately that they would not need to remember. This sounds great. And the Lord is going to enable us to fulfill our duty before him. But how exactly has he done this? He accomplished this, accomplishes this through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the one who establishes the new covenant as the greater Moses. Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take, the, take away the sin of the world and baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes and lives the life that we should have lived, loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind, or might, obeying to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in doing this, he has borne our sins and taken the curse that comes with our disobedience. All of this for us, as Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. With this atoning sacrificial death, we are freed from sin, and sin no longer has any power over us. And this equips us to fulfill our duty toward the Lord as we respect, reflect on the love of God displayed in the cross. 
the fact that the creator dies for the creature should humble us as we see how seriously God takes sin. And the depth of love shown to us on the cross should leave us in awe of God. John Newton captures how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shapes our obedience well in a hymn saying, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Jesus frees our hearts from our enslavement to sin and gives us a new heart, which has the law written on it. Or in the words of Ezekiel, we, we have received a heart of flesh that replaces our heart of stone. And from this new heart flows a life of wholehearted obedience. But this is not all. We are also baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus asked the Father to send the Spirit to apply our salvation, to make us holy, and to unite us to himself, so that we might know God as his adopted children, which is the chief privilege of the Christian. In this, the promise of Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled. God has redeemed us from sin by giving us Christ as a ransom from our lives, and then send the, sent the Holy Spirit to create a new heart in us so that we may live as faithful children of God. But the reality is that we still sin and we still fail to love God. And this is where we look again to the promises of God. We were never promised that we would be done with sin immediately. We are freed from the power of sin, yet we can still sin. And we await the coming of Christ to be made whole again, to finally love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might. We are still awaiting the final fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. In the meantime, as we wait, Jesus has called us to love God and love our neighbors. In Mark 12, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19.18 and says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus himself has fulfilled these commandments on our behalf and also serves as an example for us so that we might learn to live faithfully as our hearts are renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are to respond in love for God because he has freed us from slavery to sin and given us new hearts, enabling us to live as we were made to. And as we become whole again, we find that we are able to flourish in our relationships as our new hearts enable us to faithfully love God and others as we are able to fulfill the duties that the Lord has given us, all because of the gospel. And we will grow in obedience as we remember and live this truth time and time again. And as we are awaiting the time where we are no, longer, no longer have to be reminded to know the Lord and to obey, we've been given signs and seals from God to remind us of the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us. One of these is Lord's Supper. One of, the other is baptism. The Lord uses the sacraments to strengthen us and deepen our love for him, fueling our obedience. Participating in these sacraments places us in the story of redemption. For example, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember the death and resurrection of Christ. And in doing so, the sign and seal reminds us that though we live in a veil of tears, we can now look forward to our participation in the resurrection of Christ because we are united to him by his spirit. So in participating in the sacrament, we are reminded of the story that we have been engrafted into in a tangible way. The Spirit uses the supper as a means for our growth, helping us love the triune God who has brought about our redemption. We are also called to live in covenant communities so that we might continuously spur one another on to love and good works. So in a closing note of application, look for opportunities to encourage one another and remind one another of the love of God. Remind one another of the hope that we have and remind one another of whose world we are living in.
And as we build up our communal memory, we will collectively live out our calling to love the Lord our God, who has redeemed us from death and given us new life. Let's pray. Triune God, you have acted decisively in redeeming us to be your own people. And though we often fall short in our calling to love you with all that we are, you have provided us with a substitute, Jesus, who has taken away our sin, and you've also given us new hearts by the Holy Spirit. And for this we thank you, and ask that you would empower us to love you with all our heart, soul, and might, that you might be glorified. Amen.